Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. It's great to be back. Uh, Marcus Paul in the morning all across Australia. In fact, we're out on the World Wide Web, so who knows where you're listening to us. I'd love you to tell me, though. (laughs) You can do that by logging onto our Facebook page and giving it a like and a follow and maybe mention there where you're listening to us. As we get into a brand new week, uh, happy 4th of July. By the way, it's Monday and it is July the 4th. And wouldn't you know it, just in time to, I guess, maybe cash in on some of that national fervour. Yep, Donald Trump is set to announce, possibly, uh, maybe even as early as today, that he is going to be a candidate for 2024. Anyway, I'll get into that story for you a little later. Uh, Look, of course, the biggest story around at the moment is the flood emergency in New South Wales. My goodness, we're here again. In some cases, some communities are dealing with excess water flooding and water lapping at their doors and businesses for the fourth time in less than a year. Incredible. That massive east coast low that's off the mid-north coast of New South Wales continues to bring record rainfall. And I don't think we've seen it all just yet. I think the worst is behind us, but the Weather Bureau says today there could be some more uh, further rainfall, which, of course, will only add to swollen rivers and creeks and unfortunately lead to more evacuations. There's been a stack of those, a stack of rescues, and, I mean, where would we be? without the state emergency service personnel, first responders. Thank you to each and every one of you for keeping us safe. Anyway, I'll get into that story in just a couple of moments. John Barillaro, former New South Wales Deputy Premier, uh, may well have wished that he never invented this trade job for the United States of America. The person who was given the nod originally Well, she's about to speak out, and I don't think she'll say nice things. Anyway, I'll get to that story very soon, as uh, Mr. Barillaro continues to nail that coffin, I think, uh, putting a a final nail into the coffin of the Dominic Perrottet New South Wales government. At At this very moment, they are unelectable next March. Um, COVID is still with us, um, and unfortunately over the weekend we reached a a new milestone of 10,000 deaths in Australia. Um, Even though it's not on the front page anymore and it doesn't seem to be making news, um, we still need to be very, very vigilant uh, with new figures coming through saying that, you know, uh, it's still just as bad as it ever was. Uh, We'll get into that. Sadly, over the weekend, a Victorian Labor MP passed away at the age of only 49 from breast cancer. I'll talk about that. Now, the prickly topic of our ex-servicemen and the possibility 
that war crimes were committed in Afghanistan. Now, that came up over the weekend with the new Defence Minister, Richard Miles, urging patience. Now, the Brereton report and the allegations that were contained within are still being investigated. And Mr Miles was pushed on it on Sky over the weekend and he says, look, we, we just need to be very careful and I agree with him. Um, yes, we do need to come to a conclusion on this and get to the bottom of all of these allegations, but we can't rush into it. I mean, look what's happened already. It becomes a sideshow like it did with Ben Robert Smith and his court case against Channel 9 and others. Um, Ash Barty, congratulations to her. She's the NADOC person of the year as we get into NADOC week this week. Um, I, I don't know what would Ash Barty You'd need about 100 Nick Curioses, wouldn't you, to make one Ash Barty? Nick's been at it again. I'll talk about that. Uh, also, uh, Julian Assange celebrated a birthday over the weekend. We all know what his present would be if we could give it to him. Come on, Albo. All it takes is a call to your mate Joe Biden and let's get Julian Assange back home to Australia before his next birthday. Anyway, all of that is coming up. Oh, and I, <laughs> I should mention this as well. Your pillowcase can have more bacteria than a toilet seat. Yep, that's a story from my friends at The Big Smoke, and I'll get into that before we wrap up today's program as well. Thank you for being with us. We'll have the latest news updates, all the the latest on the flood situation, um, and the latest news as it happens. Thanks to our good friends at Air News. We'll grab a bulletin for you on the half hour. And we'll play some great tunes as we get into it. It's great to be back on this Monday morning. It is the 4th of July. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, here we are again for the, what, third or fourth time in less than a year. Sydney and surrounds are yet again facing a flood emergency. It's all thanks to a massive East Coast low and near constant heavy rain spilling from Warragamba Dam and it's seen floodwaters surge through towns in the Hawkesbury Nepean area, with the SES issuing several evacuation orders over the weekend, but yesterday being the biggest day. The SES have told people to evacuate as floodwaters at Windsor are forecast to exceed those experienced in the past three events which crippled the region. Many other residents further downstream are also affected with spills from Warragamba Dam which started spilling at 2am yesterday morning, Sunday morning. Uh, that's combining with inflows from the Upper Nepean River and is causing major flooding in areas like North Richmond. Further river level rises are expected during the remainder of today and are expected to cause major flooding at Windsor itself. Dear oh dearie me. There have also been additional evacuation orders for places like Ebenezer, Sackville North and Freeman's Reach, areas that have previously been, of course, prone to floodwaters. Emergency evacuation centres were set up over the weekend for those fleeing rising floodwaters across Sydney's southwest and the Hawkesbury, with Windsor Bridge flooding once again as emergency services warned the worst is perhaps yet to come. So, residents stretching from Newcastle to Batemans Bay have been warned again to prepare for life-threatening conditions as the state faced dangers on multiple fronts. Evacuation centres have been established 
um, at Cabravale Diggers Club in Canley Vale, the Norellan Family and Community Centre, Gymea Tradies Club, the Richmond Club and North Richmond's Community Centre. As I said, Windsor Bridge is closed between Wilberforce and that's in both directions due to flooding and there are countless other roads that have been affected by floodwaters. Emergency Services Minister Steph Cook said flash flooding, riverine flooding and coastal erosion are all likely as the state is once again pounded with torrential rain. The Upper Nepean has already seen more rain than the devastating March floods, with the Bureau concerned that other regions could also see more rain than previous flood events. Now, Ms Cook urged people to reconsider their travel plans this school holidays. She said yesterday, if you know your local community is prone to flooding, then please be prepared to evacuate at short notice. And to all those communities between Newcastle and Batemans Bay, I'm respectfully asking that you reconsider your travel plans at this time. Now, in the 24 hours to around about 5pm yesterday, the State Emergency Service responded to more than 1,400 requests for help. In the same 24 hours, they conducted some 29 flood rescues. The warning comes as emergency services have been boating out southwestern Sydney residents left stranded by floodwaters as thousands of households in the city's fringe face warnings to evacuate. In Camden, well, this is another area that's been affected by floodwaters. Residents of Ellis Lane were cut off yesterday morning by swelling waters from the Nepean River. The SES had used a boat there to evacuate an elderly woman ahead of worse weather predicted for yesterday afternoon. Other households on the swollen stretch of water have chosen to sit tight despite being cut off. And there are communities also cut off because of floodwaters. The Warragamba area in the Wallandilly, Warragamba, Silverdale and areas further north up to Orangeville and Teresa Park. Well, the only way out of there, well, there was no way out yesterday until water receded along the Burragarang area and finally residents could travel in and out. But the Wallachia Bridge at Blacksland's Crossing again underwater, making the trip, the normal trip for people heading out of those regions from Warragamba Silverdale, making it a one and a half hour trip via Picton just to travel toward the city. Anyway, the Bureau said some locations had already seen rain totals of more than 200 millimetres and towns close to the Illawarra saw an extraordinary 350 millimetres of rain. There were major flood warnings out for the Hawkesbury Nepean as the Warragamba Dam began to spill. The floodwaters, of course, expected to move downwards to North Richmond, Windsor and Penrith as they always do. In southwest Sydney, more than 4,000 people lying in, or living rather, in low-lying areas, well, they were also told to evacuate before being cut off by rising floodwaters. Most of Sydney has recorded more than 100 millimetres of rain since 9am Saturday, with a woman in her 20s rescued after clinging to a tree for up to an hour. Uh, she did that in order to escape floodwaters at Holsworthy. Water, of course, has again inundated shops, 
restaurants and closed roads in areas like Chipping Norton after the Georges River broke its banks. The SES issued evacuation orders for streets in southwest Sydney just before midnight yesterday morning, with residents in low-lying parts of Liverpool and Camden told to leave before it was too late. Residents in low-lying areas of Warrenora were also given an evacuation order just after midnight. And throughout yesterday morning, further evacuation orders were issued for parts of Camden, George's Hall, Lansvale, Moorbank, Warwick Farm, Chipping Norton, Warrenora, Wallachia and Bent's Basin. Now, <clears throat> as far as the dam's concerned, New South Wales Water is warning the Warragamba Dam will spill, will continue to spill. It started yesterday at around 9am and moderate to major flood warnings will be in place for the Nepean Hawkesbury and also the Colo River. And you have to feel sorry for many people who, you know, have gone through this upwards of two to three and even four times in the last year or so. I mean, most of the state was hit by a a so-called rain bomb on Saturday. The deluge constant across the state with huge falls recorded. 275 millimetres at Watamola, 250 millimetres at Darks Forest, 216 at Russellvale and 211 at Lucas Heights. More than 200 millimetres of rain fell south of Wollongong with six hourly totals between 80 and 150 millimetres in Sydney and also the Illawarra. What's caused it all? Well, an east coast low lies off the mid-north coast of New South Wales and is directing humid air in areas of moderate to heavy rain across the central east of the state, according to the Bureau. Moderate to heavy rain should continue in parts of the central east throughout Sydney and may continue through today as Uh, as well, of course, as the low does approach the coast. All right, well, again, as always, we want to thank the wonderful volunteers of the State Emergency Service. Now, for a full list of all the warnings and road closures and um, evacuation orders that remain in place, all the w's.ses.newsouthwales.gov.au. And, of course, if you find yourself in a bit of trouble if it's a life-threatening uh, situation called triple zero immediately. But of course, the SES are there, 132500. 132500, I've just jumped on their website now. I'm having a look at the evacuation orders that are still in place. Uh, we've got low parts of Freeman's Reach, parts of North Richmond, evacuation order parts of Sackville, and on it goes. There are plenty of those. So all the latest information is available on all the w's.ses.newsouthwales.gov.au. Welcome back on this Monday morning. I hope you're staying as dry as you possibly can and I hope those that are in flood-affected areas of greater metropolitan Sydney are okay this morning. Don't forget the SES. They do wonderful work and they're there for you. 132500 is their number. 132500. All right, let's move away from uh, the floods for now. 
And over the weekend, I noticed that the woman offered the New York trade ambassadorship only to have it ripped away from her and given to former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro. Well, she's finally spoken of her distress and fears for her career. Yep. This is the woman who was offered the New York Trade Ambassador Post. And of course, this is causing all sorts of headaches for the Dominic Perrottet government in New South Wales. We know that Mr Barillaro, of course, pulled out of the offer late last week. (laughs) He had no choice. Anyway, the woman's name is Jenny West, and she's a former investment New South Wales Deputy Secretary. She's indicated she will tell her side of the story to the state parliamentary inquiry into the controversial appointment. We know that inquiry started last week. This will include going through what is potentially an explosive 45-page dossier that she sent to the Department of Premier and Cabinet Secretary Michael Coots-Trotter after she was told she no longer had the job. Now, of course, I mentioned the former Deputy Premier stepped aside, but Miss West will appear before the committee on July the 11th after rescheduling from what had been a Wednesday hearing. And in a sign her evidence is likely to be explosive or damning, the Westpac Women of Influence winner has requested her appearance be held in private. Now, media have been told that Miss West made a written request for an in-camera hearing given the distress the saga has already caused her and her family and the short-term and long-term implications for her career. Despite the distress, however, Miss West said she was willing to appear. Now, the evidence of Miss West will be crucial in establishing how much interference and by whom was involved in what had begun as a public service appointment. Now, these happen all the time. It's not a bad gig. It's good coin and quite often a procedural uh, policy is in place. Now, I'm not suggesting at this point there was no policy followed through. However, you know, given that governments of all persuasions, you know, have previously had form on giving jobs for the boys or looking after their mates, questions do need to be asked. Trade Minister Stuart Ayres, Mr Barillaro and Premier Dominic Perrottet have each declared proper processes were followed. Along with going through her dossier to Mr Coots Trotter, which is believed to relay her concerns about the appointment process and has triggered a separate external inquiry by the consultant Graham Head, Miss West is also expected to address some of the evidence given to the committee by Investment New South Wales Chief Executive Amy Brown. Now, of course, Miss Brown was the first witness to appear before the Upper House inquiry, and she declared she was directed to stop the recruitment process of Miss West due to a change in government policy. Quote unquote, due to a change in government policy. Miss Brown, who had initially congratulated Miss West on being offered the role, told the hearing how the successful candidate became extremely upset after she was told the offer was retracted. He can't blame her. 
Now, Miss West is among several bureaucrats the committee is expected to take evidence from before potentially issuing subpoenas to John Barillaro, Stuart Ayres and even the Premier, Dominic Perrottet. It's understood the committee has also approached Department of Enterprise, Investment and Trade General Counsel Chris Carr on the changing of the goalposts for the Senior Trade and Investment Commissioners. In an email dated September 21, Mr Carr wrote that a request had been made, quote, to consider whether there are alternative methods that Senior Trade and Investment Commissioners could be employed. Now, of course, the scandal is causing immense damage to Dominic Perrottet ahead of the next March election. It certainly has also been a gift to the Labor Party after the positivity of the New South Wales state budget. Watch this space. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul. Okay, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Monday. It's great to be back getting amongst the issues. Today, of course, is July the 4th, and we're ahead of the United States as far as time zones are concerned. But as we all know, July the 4th is Independence Day. It's a public holiday for the US, and it commemorates the adoption of the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th back in 1776, which declared the original colonies to be free from British rule. That's what that's all about. So it's got an American feel to it, uh, no matter where you are, if you're talking about July the 4th. Now, speaking of the United States, this may not surprise anybody, but would you believe, yep, Donald Trump, former US president, is considering jumping into the 2024 presidential race and doing so early, maybe even before the midterm elections, according to sources. The New York Post over the weekend reported there's discussions about an early launch and people are planning. A person close to the ex-commander-in-chief told the media, there are no specifics, but people are preparing. They are laying the groundwork. Now, Mr. Trump could possibly announce he is running before November, according to insiders. Earlier on the weekend, the New York Times and CNN reported that Mr. Trump, who began his first presidential campaign in June 2015, is considering starting the potential 2024 bid at an earlier stage in the 2024 election cycle. The Republican Florida resident... I'll I'll say that again. The Republican Florida residents say it three times fast. He caught advisers off guard by hinting that he may reveal his candidacy via social media. (laughs) Is he still loud on social media? Is Trump still on Twitter? Anyway, he'll apparently do that without giving notice to those who would be part of the run. His staffers, I mean, Donald Trump has always done things the way Donald Trump wants to do. Apparently, his staffers are now hurrying to create a campaign apparatus before the possible announcement, which could come as early as this month, according to the newspapers. The 45th president has told allies he wants to start his presidential bid as soon as this month, according to CNN. Now, of course, Donald Trump, who was elected in 2016 and defeated by President Joe Biden in 2020, told The New Yorker last month, that he was very close to making a decision about what would be his third consecutive presidential campaign. 
He also said he would win in a GOP primary contest that includes Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential 2024 contender. In May, ex-New York City Mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani, a Trump confidant and his former personal lawyer, well, he told The Post Mr Trump will in fact run for the presidency again in 2024. Mr Giuliani said, I've known him for a long time. My instinct is that he is running. I see what he's doing and how he's preparing. And he sounds to me like a man who is excited about the possibility of running. Well, what do you make of that? <laughs> I'll put a post up and you can let fly. God help us if Donald Trump returns to the White House. Marcus Paul in the morning. On this Monday morning, great to have your company. Marcus Paul in the morning. Please give us a, a follow on our Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning there. That's where you'll find most of our content. Uh, thank you for listening to us, by the way, via our podcast, our prawncast. If you are, I wouldn't, uh, I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a share on your social media so we can continue to watch our podcasts grow. You can follow us as well on YouTube. Marcus Paul in the morning there. Okay, also making news, and this was a little grim over the weekend. We learnt that Australian deaths from COVID-19 have passed 10,000, with the toll climbing daily by around 50 people. It comes as the Albanese government makes a big change to rules for international travellers. According to latest figures, this new grim milestone of pandemic monitoring... Uh, there's a site called covidlive.com.au reported yesterday afternoon that confirmed deaths had hit 10,014. Now, the majority of these deaths, would you believe, have happened this year, even though we've returned to, a, I guess, a, a bit more of a, a COVID normal or we're all getting on with our lives. We're just not hearing. It's not front and centre of the news cycle like it used to be. Anyway, official national figures from the Department of Health were sitting at 9,930 at the same time, but this was according to data from July the 1st. The department no longer updates COVID stats on weekends, and that's following changes in jurisdictional reporting to the Commonwealth in May. And now the news came as it was revealed that travellers would no longer need to reveal their vaccination status to enter or leave Australia from midnight on Wednesday, Federal Health Minister Mark Butler made the announcement yesterday afternoon saying removing the requirement was based on advice from the Chief Medical Officer. It is the latest COVID-19 restriction to go as Australia continues a gradual return to normal while continuing to live with the disease. Now, Mr Butler said unvaccinated Aussies and some visa holders were already able to travel to and from Australia, but this was a further lifting of the restrictions. Yesterday, he said the Australian government makes decisions on COVID-related issues after considering the latest medical advice. He went on to say the Chief Medical Officer has advised it is no longer necessary for travellers to declare their vaccine status as part of our management of COVID. We will continue to act on the medical advice as needed.
Masks, though, of course, will continue to be worn on inbound international flights and state orders around masks on domestic flights and airports do remain in place. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill said the changes meant people travelling to Australia would no longer have to complete a digital passenger declaration form regarding their vaccination status and would make travel easier for Australians and encourage more tourists here. Now, Miss O'Neill said yesterday... This is great news for families coming home from school holidays who now don't need to fill in the DPD. That's that form, Departure Declaration Form. As more and more of us travel internationally and we get more confident in managing our risk of COVID, our airports are getting busier. She went on to say removing these requirements will not only reduce delays in our airports, but will encourage more visitors and skilled workers to choose Australia as a destination. Okay, well, what do you make of that? Let me know. Meanwhile, health experts have urged Australians not to become complacent about COVID. Well, certainly not, with those deaths climbing above 10,000. Professor Nigel McMillan, who's Director of Infectious Diseases and Immunology at Menzies Health Institute in Queensland at Griffith Uni, he said that with an estimated 6.3 million deaths worldwide from COVID-19, Australia's 10 grand may seem like a small number. But he's warned, if this current trend continues, COVID will become the second leading cause of death in Australia this year only behind that of coronary heart disease. The current 50 deaths per day is hardly noted, and yet it is more than twice the daily road toll. We need our public health leaders to rethink the approach to this disease. This is the good professor, Nigel McMillan. He says we need Omicron-specific vaccines, wider use of antivirals, and we need to wear our masks much more. Yeah, look, uh, I've said on this program, it's almost as if COVID doesn't exist anymore so far as our governments are concerned. Professor Catherine Bennett, who's chair in epidemiology at the Faculty of Health at Deakin Uni, well, she said Australia sits low on the global league table of COVID deaths per capita together with New Zealand, Taiwan and Japan. But this was not the time to cut back on COVID protections. She said yesterday, we're now experiencing a succession of Omicron variants during our winter that are holding our infection rates high. With over 8 million cases now, nearly half of those since January this year with the arrival of Omicron. She said the average daily COVID death rate in Australia sits just below two people per million. The deaths are not evenly distributed across states, though, with Victoria having up to three deaths per million since the middle of May, but New South Wales is also on the rise. Professor Catherine Bennett also says the change in death rates may be the result of increases in infection that are not reflected in the reported case numbers as testing wanes or a range of factors including the rise of a new subvariant, especially BA5. She went on to say it is critical that we learn more about those who are ending up in hospital or not surviving their infections so that we can identify what needs to be done to avoid preventable deaths and bring the case fatality rate down, whether it's 
access to the winter booster or to antiviral treatment. Ultimately, the best protection is not to become infected. And the more everyone does reduce their own risk through mask wearing and distancing, the more likely it is that we'll be able to bring down both the case rate and the case fatality rate. Yeah, well, we don't hear a lot about it in the the mass media, and we certainly don't see it on our front pages, but COVID-19 is definitely still there. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back now for my Victorian listeners and followers. This may be more newsworthy to you. Well, it's certainly newsworthy to everybody. And it's a sad story that came from Victoria over the weekend. A former minister, aged only 49, Jane Garrett, sadly passed away from cancer. She'd, had, she'd stoically fought breast cancer for a number of years, we're told. Now, a state funeral has been offered to the family of the former Victorian Government Minister, Jane Garrett. She died after a battle with cancer, and that was confirmed on Saturday night by her family. After more than a decade in politics, Miss Garrett was due to leave Parliament at this November's state election in Victoria. Now, in a statement, Premier Dan Andrews said she was a passionate advocate who lived a life of service to Victoria. He said, over the weekends, I cannot imagine the grief her family, particularly her three children, must be feeling at this incredibly difficult time, and my thoughts are with them. He tweeted, on behalf of the Victorian Government and the Parliamentary Labor Party, I offer our deep condolences to Jane's family, friends and colleagues, and all of those who knew and loved her, Valet Jane Garrett. Now, The Premier hoped that Miss Garrett's family would accept a state funeral as a fitting way to mark her significant contribution to Victoria. Now, the former MP leaves behind... This is very sad. She leaves behind three children. 10-year-old Max, 15-year-old Sasha and 19-year-old Molly. They are now without their mum. Now, Miss Garrett entered Parliament as the member for Brunswick in 2010 and was the Minister for Emergency Services, Consumer Affairs, Gaming and Liquor Regulation. But she resigned from Cabinet when Daniel Andrews' government tried to push through an enterprise bargaining agreement for firefighters, which she said she could not support. Now, following a bitter pre-selection, the mum of three moved to the Upper House in 2018, representing Eastern Victoria. Deputy Premier Jacinta Allen tweeted that Miss Garrett was a hard-working MP who fought for working people for her entire career. Public Transport Minister Ben Carroll said she could light up any room she walked into. One of a kind was what his tweet read. And opposition leader Matthew Guy, I mean, as we know, normally politics is extremely partisan, but at sad times like this, uh, politicians from all sides come together. Opposition leader Matthew Guy described her as bold and brave. She won't be forgotten. May she rest in peace. And yes, that's a very sad story over the weekend. Jane Garrett passing away from cancer at the age of only 49. 
All right, also making news over the weekend, five people were transported to hospital after a minibus rolled on the way to the Snowies. And unfortunately, the accident near Berrydale in New South Wales saw several passengers trapped. The bus reportedly lost control on a sweeping bend on Kosciuszko Road and rolled several times just after 10am. That was 10am yesterday. There were 10 people on board the bus, including the driver and authorities, said nine were trapped inside the vehicle. Emergency crews responded to the incident, which occurred near Berrydale, which is on the main road headed towards Jindabyne. Five passengers suffered minor injuries. They were taken to hospital by New South Wales Ambos. Fire and Rescue, New South Wales Police and the RFS were also on the scene. The bus driver was breath tested at the scene and returned a negative result. Now, police attached to Monero are investigating the circumstances of the crash. But I think what it does, you know, with beautiful snowfalls around Victoria and New South Wales and plenty of people heading down that way for the school holidays, what this story does highlight is the need to take it very easy on the roads heading to the snowies. For obvious reasons, they are slippery, icy, and some even covered with snow. And of course, in a lot of circumstances, you need to carry chains. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, nice to have you company. Welcome back. Monday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning. It's the uh, the 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. <laughs> um, or maybe not, if uh, what I read earlier in that story about Donald Trump jumping in early for the 2024 presidential campaign, maybe it's not such a happy Independence Day. I don't know. Anyway, uh, look, this is an issue that quite often uh, becomes very divisive. And that is uh, any investigation into Australian troops that have served overseas. Uh, We know with the Ben Robert Smith case and and other incidents of reported uh, war crimes by our own service people, uh, we know how divisive it becomes. And a lot of people instantaneously, without hearing any facts or any evidence, choose sides. Well, the new Defence Minister, Richard Miles, is urging patience as federal police investigate alleged war crimes by Australian troops in Afghanistan. Basically, he's saying, allow time for any shameful episodes to be fully investigated. The Office of the Special Investigator is working with federal police to investigate allegations of criminal offences by ADF members in Afghanistan from 2005 to 2016. Now, at the moment, he's acting Prime Minister with Albo overseas, so the acting PM said it was important investigators were given time to follow through on evidence unearthed by former New South Wales Judge Paul Brereton in the Brereton Report. Mr Miles told Sky yesterday it is dealing with a shameful episode in Australia's military history. It matters in terms of who we are as a nation, who we are as a people, that our country deals with this this itself. Mr Miles refused to put a timeline on when Australians could expect charges to be laid when he was asked. He replied, what I'd commit to is this, that we follow through uh, this to its completion 
in the timeliness that has been set out. There's going to be no stepping back in relation to this because it is fundamentally important, a, uh, a fundamental important process for those who we are as a people. So basically what he's saying is we mustn't rush into this. Uh, opposition defence spokesman Andrew Hastie, who served in the Special Forces, says he wants the process wrapped up. He says he wants to see it resolved. We don't want to see young soldiers who had nothing to do with events in Afghanistan being tarred with the same brush. He said, so hopefully this will be wrapped up as soon as possible and we can turn the page completely and start a new chapter for our special forces. Look, both Mr Miles, as the Defence Minister and his opposite, Andrew Hasty, both make very good points. Uh, but we do need to be very careful here. I mean, if, if anything, the recent court case involving... You know, Victoria Cross recipient Ben Robert Smith, if that's proven anything, you know, you can't go hastily rushing to judgment. As we know, the Brereton Inquiry found credible evidence of war crimes by special forces while serving in Afghanistan, including 39 murders and cruel treatment of around two others. Yeah, well, let's hope that the Brereton Report and the investigation that's ongoing does lead ultimately to an end uh, to this sorrowful saga uh, of Australian military history. The Office of the Special Investigator will continue to work with Federal Police and they'll investigate the allegations that occurred, their allegations, mind you, by ADF members in Afghanistan from 2005 to 2016. And I think it does need to take a little time. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Um, something I shared yesterday on our social media, uh, on the Facebook page. Please give us a follow if you haven't already. Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, and that is, it's the beginning of NADOC week. NADOC week, an important week in Australia where we uh, celebrate, commemorate uh, the wonderful Aboriginal rich history and culture that we have here in Australia. Anyway, every year there is a NADOC Person of the Year and this year the recipient was or is the wonderful and newly retired Ash Barty, former world number one tennis player. And look, to a person, everybody on the Facebook page after I, I shared this news yesterday, basically says it's a, basically believe it's a, a wonderful uh, achievement by Ash. Uh, Paul says, Marcus, she's an absolute champion in every sense of the word. Pete says, go Ash, champion, on and off the court. Have a word to Nick Kyrgios, will you? <laughs> I'll get to that in a moment, Pete. Uh, Kev says, hey, yay, Ash, still knocking out of the park without a racket. Look, I think everybody agrees this is a wonderful choice for NADOC Person of the Year, and that is former world number one Ashley Barty. Okay, so Ash is doing well and doing us proud, not only on the world stage, as she always did, as a wonderful role model, 
The same can't be said, and I'm sorry, I know this may upset one or two, but the same can't be said for Nick Kyrgios. I mean, what is wrong with this bloke? All the talent in the world does not give you the right to be an absolute tosser. Anyway, over the weekend, Nick Kyrgios was at his defiant best on and off the court as his match against Stefanos Tsitsipas took the tennis world by storm, apparently. Kyrgios won the explosive third-round Wimbledon encounter in four sets and midway through the match refused to play as he demanded Tsitsipas be defaulted for hitting a ball into the crowd. (laughs) The Greek star complained to the chair umpire about his opponent's behaviour on court one before the pair dropped some bombs in their post-match press conference. Tsitsipas called Kyrgios a bully with an evil side to him, while the Australian accused the fourth seed of being quote-unquote soft. (laughs) Kyrgios, who was adamant he did nothing wrong on yesterday morning's game, was also blunt in certain exchanges with journalists during his media commitments. Uh, Some of the interactions were extremely frosty. Um, A journalist um, said to Nick, today there was one moment when he missed an easy shot and you said, good shot. I mean, that's not nice. You must admit, if someone had done that to you, you wouldn't have liked it. Uh, Kyrgios replied, am I trying to be nice? I most likely would have come in here and said I got bullied. I said, nice shot. Now it's getting out of hand. It wasn't an easy shot. I hit a good serve and I saw him working on his backhand return and he hit the back fence, so I said, good shot. (laughs) I mean, Nick Kyrgios gets really frosty. Um, Another female journalist said, generally players don't get defaulted for hitting the ball into the crowd. Do you think that would change? So Nick replied, frostily again, so you don't think that hitting a spectator in the head with a ball warrants a default? (laughs) (laughs) And on it went. And look, I, I just... I worry about Nick being overly emotional. I mean, he has all the talent in the world. But I get, as an Australian, I get a little bit embarrassed by his antics. And I don't know, he rubs me up the wrong way. What do you make of him? Do you think that... Um, you know, we should forgive his arrogance and forgive his rudeness and his behaviour because he's such a, you know, a, a great hitter of the tennis ball. I don't think so. Anyway, you're more than welcome to have your say on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you company. Um, look, the calls for the Albanese government to do something, anything, to have Julian Assange freed from captivity getting louder by the day. Now, over the weekend, yesterday, in fact, there was a a bit of a milestone. Hundreds of people gathered in the city of Melbourne to mark the birthday of Julian Assange. Crowds assembled outside the State Library, holding placards before marching through the city toward the United Kingdom consulate. Calls for the government to intervene in the extradition of the WikiLeaks founder from the US to the UK were among the list of supporters' demands. The group said not one more birthday should be spent incarcerated. 
Similar protests occurred in London as well over the weekend. Uh, Now, Julian Assange's wife, Stella, and supporters gathered outside of the British Home Office to call for his release from Belmarsh Prison. It comes after Mr Assange lodged a last-ditch appeal to the UK High Court over the British government's decision to extradite him to the US. The appeal is the latest twist in the decade-long saga sparked by the publication of classified US documents. And look, I have my opinion on this and so do many other journalists. And I think we're all on the same page here. Journalism is not a crime. You know, I know that (laughs) the United States calls it espionage and perhaps treason, but I don't think that's the case. Anyway, in the United States, he does face 17 charges of espionage and one charge of computer misuse. Home Secretary Priti Patel signed an order on June the 17th approving the WikiLeaks founder's extradition. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has repeatedly refused to comment publicly on Mr Assange's case since being elected in May. Yeah, well that's to me a little disappointing because I'm sure I've heard Albo in the past say that, you know, uh, if he was elected, he would do everything he could to try and have Mr Assange freed. But Albo instead insists not all foreign affairs is best done with the loudhailer. So, look, that may mean that he's working quietly behind the scenes. I really hope so. Green Senator Janet Rice, who addressed the Melbourne rally, called on Mr Albanese to, quote, pick up the phone and demand US President Joe Biden drop the charges. In a statement last month, Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Attorney General Mark Dreyfus said they wanted to see the case brought to a close. They said, we will continue to express this view to the governments of the United Kingdom and the United States. Look, I think it is high time that Julian Assange was able to return home to Australia. It's high time. And again, protesters gathered over the weekend to call for an end to his extradition to the US from the UK and also to celebrate his birthday. How old is he? Um, Let me just have a look here. I should have done that in my prep, shouldn't I? Julian Assange. How old are you, Julian? Um, Have a look here. Oh, okay, he's my age. He was born on July the 3rd. There you go. Well, that's his birthday. (laughs) His birthday yesterday, July the 3rd, 1971. He's 51. Oh, so he's a year older than me. (laughs) Just. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Um, During my absence last week, uh, of course, the industrial carnage continued across New South Wales, in particular in in Sydney, and those areas uh, so dependent upon public transport. We had the uh, the trains come to a complete stop or, well, 
70 to 80 per cent of them anyway. Over their industrial action against the Perrottet government, we had teachers walk off the job as well again, and uh, on it goes. On it goes. Uh, I've been listening uh, very uh, intently to to both sides of the argument, and those on the far right, those who support the uh, the governments, um, are effectively union bashing, saying that you know this is a uh, a campaign of political espionage or political bastardry being undertaken in order for a change of government in New South Wales next March. They're saying effectively that the unions are holding Dominic Perrottet's government to ransom in order to get their demands met, and if they don't, they're going to strike and continue to strike. Uh, I mean, they made no secret of that fact. They told us that 2022 would be the year of the strike. Um, Now, (laughs) unions are being smashed by the Conservatives, uh, Conservative talkback and all the rest of it, um, but not so much the educational side of things. Maybe with the train drivers, because some of the train drivers do okay, um, and uh, I, I can understand the point in relation to the trains. I know that you know they, they're concerned about public safety and uh, the trains have been built overseas and they want... Um, you know, certain aspects of carriages changed and all the rest of it that we've talked about before. But the government has come to the party on that. But the, the union are now saying, well, that's great, OK, so you're going to fix up the, uh, the trains like we've asked you to do. Now about how about ponying up the dough that we want? Uh, when initially they said it was all about safety. Well, let's not kid ourselves, it's also about money. And I'm not saying that train drivers don't and those that work on the trains don't deserve a pay rise, but you have to remember during the pandemic, uh, you know, they didn't lose work and, and on it goes. So there are arguments on both sides of the fence. But I noticed that where the teachers are concerned... And, you know, those Conservatives on 2GB and elsewhere, uh, as they... And and there was a ridiculous front page uh, in the Daily Telegraph, which was having a good old crack at teachers. Um, But parents, I think in general, have the teachers back on this because they know there's a big teacher shortage. They know, and I've talked about this, 70% of those in the profession want to bolt because the workload's too high and they're not getting paid enough. So I think there is, throughout the community, a lot of support for the teachers. Maybe not so much for the transport workers, but certainly the teachers. Now, speaking of uh, public transport, I put something up on the phage over the weekend in relation to this. The waste, the complete and utter overspend, which I think adds a whole new dimension to the New South Wales public service woes. And it was something that was sent to me, um, and I think it's, you know, fairly accurate. Just like in Canberra, New South Wales is weighed down by a bloated bureaucracy. Take, for example, Transport for New South Wales. This, of course, being Andrew Constance's old uh, portfolio that he left in an absolute shambles and then, you know, went to suck the teats at a federal level. Thank goodness didn't get there. Anyway, (laughs) 
This is the mob that shut down the rail network with zero notice. They did this. Transport for New South Wales. They have um, at least 56 executives, we're told, earning more than $250,000 a year. Think about that. Um, No, it's more than... No, 556 or something. More than 500 people. Anyway, in one department earning more than a quarter of a million dollars a year. We're told that a further 99 take home $355,000. And roughly 12 are on half a million bucks each. That's more than the Premier of New South Wales. Wow. Wow. And this is the mob that brought us, of course, Indonesian ferries with asbestos, trains that don't fit under bridges, Spanish trams that crack on the light rail, and the delayed Korean trains that the unions, as I mentioned, are refusing to operate. And the boss of Transport New South Wales, or Transport for New South Wales, is Rob Sharp, his name is. How good's he going? He got absolute stuff-ups galore, and he's on 600k a year. There are also, we're told, 18 executives in transport alone earning more than the Premier of New South Wales. It's not right, is it? Now, a lot of you have been commenting on that on the uh, the Facebook page over the weekends. Um, Angelique says, now I know Angelique's a bit of a critic of mine, but that's okay. Angelique says, if you're having a go at the current state government, I'm sure it's the same regardless of who's in power. Well, I returned by saying I'd suggest it's been going on for a long time and not just under the current LNP. It just adds weight to the argument frontline workers should receive a wage increase in line with inflation and nothing less. Anyway, uh, and on the comments went. All we can do now, says Dan, is give the Labor federal government a chance to fix some of the damage done by the Libs and the Nats. They won't be able to reverse all the problems, as is the nature of state v federal law, but public infrastructure is definitely something they're capable of repairing. We allowed the LNP to have nearly a whole decade to screw it all up. It's only fair we extend the same courtesy to Labor. <laughs> uh, Chris says, well, Marcus, come on. It's another reason to get rid of state governments entirely. And this one as well. Uh, Marina shared this, and I have seen this. Pilot shortages, teacher shortages, nurse shortages, service industry workers shortages. We're now seeing firsthand the jobs that really run our society. You know what we don't have a shortage of, though? Overpaid CEOs. Uh, That's a good point. A really good point. Anyway, if you would like to comment on any of the stories uh, that we feature on the program, you can do so do so on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning. You ain't heard nothing yet. Marcus Paul. Okay, just wanted to share this story with you from my uh, friends at the Big Smoke Australia. If you're looking for uh, a great read, uh, go to all the W's, thebigsmoke.com.au, and uh, you'll even find an article or two that I've written for them, for Alex Chelios and her team. Okay, well, (laughs) this caught my attention over the weekend. Your pillowcase 
can have more bacteria than a toilet seat. My apologies if you're eating breakfast. Um, now, the, the author of this story, uh, who wrote it? I'm not quite sure anyway. They write, your pillowcase can have more bacteria than a toilet seat. Oh, also, surveyed bachelors only change their linen every three to four months. Well, I'm a former bachelor, and I have to say, (laughs) that's not entirely true. Maybe every month. Anyway, fortunately, before I was bestowed with this little gem, I had indeed washed my bed linen, including pillowcases, the day before. It didn't really lie the heebie-jeebies, though, for good reason. Every one of us sheds around a million biological particles per hour just by exhaling, sloughing off our skin cells and radiating hot air from the top of our heads. A million biological particles every hour. And as most people slumber from six to nine hours sleep per night, some scientists estimate we shed around 15 million skin cells during our sleep. Interestingly, the highest concentration of bacterial contamination in your bed sheets is around your head, your groin and your leg areas. If you are a side sleeper, your breath makes it worse on your pillow. Your skin cells and bacteria don't build up though. That's what keeps those pesky little dust mites fed and happy. So imagine my level of heebie-jeebies when I came across this. Recent research undertaken in the United Kingdom exposed that half of the single men surveyed only wash their sheets every three to four months, with 12% of those admitting they only did it when they remembered, which doesn't really promote any hope for more frequency. That's a hell of a lot of dirt, dead skin and cells, body oils and sweat. All of that, more food for the dust mites to procreate and multiply and then die, leaving their carcasses and faecal matter. Oh wait, (laughs) your pillows are worse. A study by the University of Manchester found that your pillows and pillowcases also hold millions of fungal spores. The typical fungi that live there causes infection, exacerbates asthma, and can be lethal for those with any type of disease that denotes a weakened immune system. And because it's so bloody gross, your pillow can become like a giant facial wipe, effectively clogging your pores and giving you acne. So, look in summary. Your bed is a haven of poo, dead skin, germs, mold, and arachnids. And in case you wondered, it's recommended that you wash and change your bed linen at least once a week. The longer you leave it, the worse it gets. Now, frankly, it has to be said to those otherwise eligible bachelors on three-month timetables, you're doing yourself quite the disservice in the love department. Women can smell that wreckage a mile away. So as they say, good night, sleep tight and don't let the big bed bugs bite. A great story. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, that'll-
that'll do us for this Monday. It's great to be back on your radio uh, at starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform on TuneIn, and maybe listening back on the podcast, the Prawncast, if you are. Uh, I wouldn't uh, mind at all if you gave it a share on your social media. In fact, I would greatly appreciate it. Do that for me. Um, now, don't forget as well, we're always after just a little help because, you know, we do this... Um, without any corporate support whatsoever and no advertisers. So if you could help us out, uh, the the Fund Me page, um, we'll put a link on the podcast, okay, if you wouldn't mind, just a little bit, just to help us out to cover our costs and keep us going here at Marcus Paul in the morning. I'll be back tomorrow with uh, my spin on the daily news. Uh, if you want to send me an email, you can do that. Um, send it marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au, okay? Uh, apart from that, of course, you can continue uh, to be a part of our online presence on our social media, our Facebook page. Uh, that's where the majority of the content sits. Give it a like and a follow if you could. Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook. There'll be more going up there today, of course, and any breaking news that we come across, we throw up. Now, I just want to, again, give a big shout-out, a big thank you to all of the frontline workers, the first responders, and the wonderful volunteers from the State Emergency Service of Doom who have done and continue to do an admirable job. Um, I mean, they don't get the thanks they deserve. Thank you for all of your help and the wonderful work in dealing with the latest flooding catastrophe here in New South Wales, in particular in metropolitan Sydney. Stay as dry as you possibly can. Let's hope for sunnier skies ahead later this week. See you tomorrow, 7 or 9. Marcus Paul in the morning. Bye for now. All right, goodies. This will get you the goodies.